Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back. We're covering the book of Malachi today. This is the last of the prophets or last of the minor prophets. Within the Christian tradition, this ends the Old Testament. Within the Jewish tradition, it doesn't really end of the Jewish Bible because the placement of the books isn't the same. So you had the prophets, and then after the prophets, you get the writings. And so Malachi isn't the end of the Jewish Bible, but it is still considered the last of the prophets, not necessarily chronologically, but the placement in the books. This is the last of the 12, the minor prophets. As you've said before, Christopher, Minor doesn't necessarily mean not as good. It just means lesser, less writings. Yeah, exactly. So we have smaller books here, which have been easier to read and digest, right? <laughs> In some ways. Yeah. That's been nice. There enters this concept here with Malachi within the Jewish tradition of the end of prophecy. After Malachi, there's not really a recording of additional prophets within the Jewish tradition. And so there's really endless commentary on this fact, this concept of the end of prophecy. I remember we spoke about this a little bit when we recorded on the book of Esther, which I did with my wife. Some of the commentary from Aviva Zornberg on this was talking about how Esther was maybe the last of the prophets being a prophetess because she just had these hints right, of of these moments when there was not exactly the spirit, but these hints from God. And so that was kind of the tapering off of the prophecy. It was kind of an interesting Midrashic commentary. But again, this concept of this end of prophecy, like I said, there's all kinds of commentary on it. The best explanation that I came across on this was from James Kugel in his book, How to Read the Bible. And I'm going to kind of summarize that, even though he goes on for a couple chapters about this. And really, it would do the listener a lot of good to go and read that or listen to James Kugel on this point. This is a a book that we recommended and and read before the beginning of the Old Testament here. So, you know, basically a year ago, we did this in preparation for the Old Testament. In short, the tradition of prophetic utterance was, in some ways, ironically edged out by the actual writing down of the prophecies. Because what happened was that the written word started taking precedence over the spoken word. Now, I don't mean the oral tradition. I mean the actual spoken word of prophets. So at some point, the people started feeling that they had received enough. You know, we have this concept kind of in our tradition of receiving enough or as, as a negative, right? So at some point, the people started feeling like they had received enough and that more prophets maybe weren't really necessary. They had this large body of text of scripture that they could refer to. And even if maybe some prophets did come and speak, it was simply seen as commentary, not as necessarily new prophetic scripture. There's an overall trend, historically speaking, 
And even in psycholinguistics, this comes up, right? The idea that speaking comes before writing, poetry comes before prose. And so by the time we get into prose, and we're already seeing some of that in the Bible, right? Even in the Hebrew Bible, then yes, we are starting to favor, let's say the left brain, right? The sort of, not the holistic experience of hearing a prophet speak, but this discursive, logical, one word after another written stuff, especially in prose, right? Some of the stuff that we have in the Bible that's in poetry, including some of the prophets, right? Isaiah in particular, is still in poetry, right? As it's written down. But it comes from that oral tradition. And eventually we get, yes, you know, prose and then writing. And then Plato was worried, for example, that everybody would forget how to remember because of writing. Hmm. And now we have in our time, nobody will know anything because they will just think, I just can Google it. Right? Yeah. I don't need to memorize <laughs> any idea. facts. Yeah. Plato may have had a point. I don't know. But if he's wrong, and, and then if we're wrong in the same way, who knows what we become? We will co evolve with our computers, you know, or with artificial intelligence, or maybe we'll devolve and they'll, they'll enslave <laughs> us. I don't know. <laughs> There's some interesting dynamics that happen here. Like uh, I was saying, with the change from a more oral tradition to a more written scriptural tradition. And it's it's nuanced, it's complex. Like I said, Google gets more into it. So I hope that my summary or, or condensed version of it doesn't betray it too much. You know, we saw a little bit of this, hints of this within Ezekiel. We talked about how Ezekiel seems to be that first book that was intended to be written down from the start, as opposed to some of the others were seemingly more obviously oral tradition before they were written down. There's something about the written word that feels more stable, more permanent in a sense. And I think that over time, when you've built up this written corpus, then it starts to feel large and authoritative and anything new has to push in a sense against that and it becomes more and more difficult over time to produce something that can push against that enough with the same authority. That's why things become commentary and less authoritative in terms of actual scripture over time. In the Islamic tradition, the Quran itself challenges anyone to produce a chapter, you know, like unto a chapter in the Quran. So, what you're saying about that challenge, so to speak, reminds me of a part in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, where the Lord challenges the companions of Joseph Smith to produce something similar, a revelation like he has. And the narrative here goes that nobody else is able to do it, right? And so, it falls back and says, see, you know, Joseph Smith really is the prophet, right? So, this is kind of the, the, the point here is that producing something new that has that authoritative feel, I think, over time becomes more and more difficult for a community to accept because they become so accustomed to the way things are. And that maybe speaks to, you know, why the Book of Mormon or anything else that we see as new scripture is also difficult for a community to accept, right? Because it's new. And, you know, there's all oh, yeah. these reasons that 
oh, it, it can't fit because we have this whole tradition of commentary on what this actually means and your new text is going to challenge that as well. So that's a really good point, Ben. That's a really good point because it's not maybe we maybe you could produce something that's that seems to fit in with the other texts, right? But can it fit in with our theology? Mm-hmm. Right? And of course, I think someone could maybe produce something like that. But the problem is it becomes unacceptable to add anything to it. And like you said, it's really a hard sell to to go to, you know, I'm thinking Christians, I guess, go to an evangelical and say, hey, here we have a new book to add to the Bible. No, that you can't do that, right? Oh, yeah. And this is going to come up in, not to get into New Testament (laughs) too much as we're saying, Christopher, but this is going to come up in the New Testament, the concept of, okay, what if we discovered a new letter of Paul that could be authenticated? Like, you know, all the scholars say, no, this is definitely a new letter of Paul. Would that get added to the scripture? I think that's oh, a really good that's question. That's a really good right? question. Because yeah. that really strikes at the heart of what is scripture? What is text to us? Even if scholars could authenticate it, it hasn't gone through the tradition of these 2000 years and sort of, you know, proven itself in the scriptural sense, not just a textual yeah. sense, right? Oh yeah, I think, you know, it it would be a tough sell. I'm sure that the the scholars would receive a lot of skepticism from <laughs> believers. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. They already do, right? They, they already do. I mean, they're already pushing back. They've been pushing back. Historical biblical criticism has been pushing back against literal and other, you know, medieval and uh, uh, late antique interpretations of the Bible. And now here we are, you know, we've come to a place where, where even as Latter-day Saints, we're looking at historical critical scholarship, right? And benefiting immensely, right? But that was not something we used to do. Right. Even though we have explicitly in our tradition, the idea, oh, canon's not closed, there's new scripture that could come out at any time, it's still hard for us to accept those nuances. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, thinking ahead to the to the New Testament again and trying to stay here in Malachi at the same time, <laughs> there are texts that don't make the canon, right? Not everything that was written is accepted. And the things that are accepted, they don't necessarily have any more validity than uh, than the ones that aren't. From a scholarly point of view, necessarily. Well, it's just that somebody thought they did, right? Yeah. And so they got to decide that. Yeah. You know, they decided that in those councils that we, in our tradition, actually repudiate, although they gave us our canon. It's an interesting dynamic there, for sure. Speaking specifically about the book of Malachi, Malachi may not have been the name of an actual prophet. We might be more likely looking at a title derived from the text of the book itself. And maybe this title isn't even referring to a specific person. Maybe it is. It's referring to the author of the book, whoever that is, whether it's an individual or multiple people. The fact is the name Malachi is not found elsewhere in the Bible. But it means literally my messenger, or it could be translated also as angel. An angel is a messenger, right? So you could say, this is my angel or a messenger. Yeah. Our word angel comes from the Greek angelos, and that means messenger. Yeah. So the book probably dates to a time close to Ezra and Nehemiah. Some sources speculate that Malachi, the author of this book, was actually Ezra, the scribe. But it's just not clear who the author actually was, even if the author was somehow actually named Malachi. We just don't know anything about who this Malachi was. 
In the Book of Mormon, we do have Jesus who quotes Malachi when he comes to the people and he mentions him or or his writing specifically, which I thought was an interesting point to bring up here because you know, you you might have some people say, "Oh, no, you know, this definitely was an actual prophet person because look in the Book of Mormon we have Jesus quoting him." I would just kind of go back a second and say, "Well, actually in the New Testament we have Jesus referring to Jonah." And then come to find out, you know, the story that Jesus is referring to wasn't some historical event. Jesus is referring to this within the canon of the people within their mythological tradition and making a point about that. So for Jesus to quote Malachi in the Book of Mormon seems like a non-issue to me. There's no reason to take it as a statement about the historicity of a person named Malachi. By Jesus' time, Malachi was an established book of prophetic scripture, so it was viewed this way by the canonical tradition from that time forward. Right, and so at that point, as literature, and and this is the case with all literature, we speak of the persons, the characters within literature as if they were real. Yeah. Right. So I talk about characters from my favorite novels, or that I think are examples. You know, Jean Valjean is an example of you know an outstanding Christian, for example. But he's a character. Right. I also notice as I'm reading through Malachi that Joseph Smith is obviously heavily influenced by Malachi because we see quotations and references all over in the Doctrine and Covenants and Joseph Smith history about Malachi. I mean, straight up when the angel Moroni comes to Joseph Smith, he's quoting Malachi right off the bat. So this is a book of scripture of the Old Testament that was very influential to Joseph Smith. Indeed. There are things here maybe that aren't clear as there, as there are in other parts of the Bible too, right? There are things we yeah. don't really know. What they're open to interpretation, right? We don't really know what they mean. And I'm not just talking about Hebrew words where we don't know what they mean. I mean, just things that are named. And I don't just mean names of places, but concepts, right? And so part of the restoration is let's define these concepts that are mm. a question mark for people reading these texts. And so that's what mm. Joseph Smith does with not only with Malachi, but with Malachi. Yeah, other stuff too, for sure. The genre that we find throughout Malachi repeated multiple times is is distinctive. It's sometimes called a disputation, where you have these opposing arguments or questions that are put back and forth, and they're presented in a series and then answered. This is similar in some ways, some of the commentary was saying, to Greek diatribes. And so we see already here in Malachi, an Old Testament book, some Greek influence within the rhetoric and prophetic tradition. And that's important too, as we come to the end of the Old Testament and go into the New Testament to understand that the world in which these events we're reading about are taking place is thoroughly Hellenized after Alexander, who's already shown up in this text. We'll probably go into that in our introduction to the New Testament more. Yeah. So this, this part of the world is already, by the time the book of Malachi is produced, we probably already got, you know, one or 200 years of Hellenization going on. In the Jewish tradition, you know, typically we're placing the prophets before the writings. So while Malachi isn't the last book in the Jewish Bible, it is the last book of the prophets. So for Christians, Malachi is typically the last book of the Old Testament, and the reference at the end of it to the prophet Elijah is seen as a segue to the prophet John the Baptist in the New Testament. And so that's one of the reasons you you end Malachi talking about Elijah. You turn the page, you get into Matthew, and 
not quite right off the bat, but pretty quick you get right into the prophet John, who is equated with Elijah. Yeah, it's really convenient to have the 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 one bookend with Malachi and the other to begin yeah. with in that way. But you know, it's again in the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew Bible ends with Second Chronicles. And so you don't you wouldn't get the same effect, right, of going from this book of Malachi and reading about this prophet and then going into Matthew and reading about a prophet that looks like it's implied that this is the prophet, right? I got to say the end of Malachi is much more dramatic than the end of Chronicles to put at the end of the Bible. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> that is true. But there is, you know, there's something to the status of Chronicles that has it show up at the end. It's not about this is the place to end. It's about we're putting all the writings last. And that's something we've gone into again in the introduction to the Old Testament. It's, it's worth getting a handle on that. If, you know, if the listener is not really aware of how all these things fit together. And hopefully, you know, if you've been following the podcast over the course of the last year, I know Ben and I have learned a lot. So hopefully you've, you've been learning along with us. Yeah, so Christopher, do you have anything else to say with regards to introduction to the book of Malachi? Yeah, Ben, you know, let me just add this. So Malachi is going to be a little bit different from prophets like, you know, these early prophets like Amos and Hosea. This is a late prophetic book. It's not just one of the believers from among this religious tradition that is speaking out against a corrupt priesthood. Although if the priesthood is failing, that doesn't go unmentioned, right? That does show up. Mm-hmm. But the writer may have been a priest himself and then takes on the mantle of the Lord's messenger. It kind of reminds me obliquely, I guess, of Obadiah, who says he's he's not a, a prophet, right? He's a herdsman, right? Yeah. Somehow this book is identified with the Levitical tradition, right? Yes, there's definitely allusions to that. Yeah. Right. So of course there's the the true temple worship is a concern and payment of tithes. That's part of the the Levitical priestly concern too. And that's a very famous passage that we'll cover, of course. It's one of the scripture mastery scriptures, right? In our yeah. tradition. So, you know, like he could have been one of these temple prophets, right? Like Haggai, Zechariah. Yeah, it would make sense. He's about the same time as we mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah. So, he's he's dealing with a lot of the same types of prophetic issues that they mention as well. Yeah. So, what I'm getting at is that he may not be one of these prophets from the periphery. And I myself made a big deal out of prophets coming from the periphery, right? This may be a prophet who actually comes from among the priestly class. So, that happens too. And again, if you are a prophet from the priestly class, you still act like a prophet from the periphery in the sense that you're speaking out against some form of corruption. So, if you're speaking from the periphery of society, then it's the actual society that you're critiquing, right? It's probably about social justice. But if you're speaking from among the priestly class and now you're going to speak up, it's going to be against the priestly class. And so, that's all I really wanted to add to the introduction, you know, to the text. Yeah. So, going into some of the text here, Christopher, right off the bat in chapter one, if we look at verses two through four, this is a beginning of this disputation genre that I mentioned, this diatribe. And for me, as I was reading it, it was actually similar in form somewhat to the beginning of Haggai when the Lord comes and he says, you know, oh, the people say it's not time yet to build the temple. But then the Lord asks them a question, or, you know, when is it going to be time? Or you're sitting in your paneled houses, whatever. So it's like this argument that's presented, both sides are presented, but in a, you know, polemical way, maybe straw manned a little bit. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's polemic. Yeah. That's polemics, right? One of the verses that hit me the hardest here in chapter one was verse eight. 
you know, it, it's critiquing the priestly tradition and it's saying that they will sometimes offer blind or lame or sick animals in sacrifice. And it says, is not that wrong? What was so interesting about this to me was that the New Testament writers seem to be referencing this, I would say, when they portrayed Jesus as healing the blind, the lame, and the sick explicitly. While you've got these animals which can't be used in sacrifice because of all of these things, then you have Jesus in the New Testament coming along and healing all of these people who have these maladies, this this blindness or this lameness or sickness. And so that's sort of another way of, of them presenting Jesus as a way of reconciling all to God, right? All of a sudden, these people who weren't fit for sacrifice, like the, the, the animals aren't fit for sacrifice, right? These people who weren't fit to be part of the society, weren't acceptable to God, so to speak. Jesus comes and heals them. He reconciles them all to God. As it was mentioning that, I, I realized that those were the exact terms that are used in the New Testament when they talk about Jesus healing people. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. I love that. That gives me a lot to think about. Chapter 2 continues this critique of these practices that are happening where you know maybe they're not sacrificing correctly or as verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 says they do not lay it to heart right so we've we've mentioned this multiple times they're doing the outward thing but their intention is not in it their heart is not in it these sacrifices are worthless without the intention in your heart and that's the real issue right i mean God did say, give me this kind of animal, right? As they understand it. And, you know, it just becomes a matter of sincerity, right? You could say obedience. I'd prefer to think of it as sincerity to actually offer that kind of animal, right? Yeah. Otherwise, you're just pretending, right? And and it's funny, too, because this is to God. You think God's not going to notice? <laughs> right? I'm going to fool God. I'll just see. He, he won't notice what I'm doing here, right? They tell us that God asked for this, that, and the other to be sacrificed and, and in a certain way. But regardless, the point is, at this point, if you are making a sacrifice and your heart is in it, will God accept it? Yes. But if you're making a sacrifice and you're following all the rules that maybe necessarily come from God, they come from maybe man's understanding of God, then no. It's really the intent of the heart that counts. And this is what Jesus brings out in his ministry. Yeah. And this is that exoteric. That's the outward thing that we look at and try to make a judgment about the esoteric through, right? We we look at, oh, you're offering a sick animal. That must mean you're not sincere, right? And and so it's it's all these defenses that we put around this to try to define the esoteric by what we see in the exoteric. And, you know, like you said, Jesus comes along and says, you can't make that kind of a judgment about things because when you start putting all the emphasis on that outward thing, then, you know, even here and says in the book of Malachi, then your heart can never be the focus of that. This comes up a lot of times when we talk about the expense that is put into churches or temples or buildings there's a lot of discussion about, okay, you're spending all this money or you're doing all of these things for this outward shell thing, right? But what does that really indicate? Are you doing this for actual, true, righteous intention? Or are you doing this to pad your ego or 
think that's really what God wants from you, or you're doing it uh, in order to oppress. We have some examples of these priests who are extracting things from the poor, these sacrifices from the poor that are above what needs to be done because that's how they make their living as priests as well, right? So there's this tension here and there's this question that always arises with this. Do we, do we, why do we give the best of the best in our sacrifice? What's the intention there, right? Yeah. You know, I'm going to add something because I think. You mentioned the priests getting their living in that way. And I thought, wait a minute, we're going into tithing here in Malachi. We get the famous tithing mm-hmm. verse. Yeah. And that took me back to Deuteronomy. And what are the, what is tithing for? Well, one of the things that tithing was for was to pay the priests. Mm-hmm. And so if that's their living where it comes from tithing, then what you're saying they're doing at the temple is actually something that they're not in any way or sense entitled to, right? There does seem to be an opportunity for a conflict of interest here. And now God says in chapter 2, verse 3, right? I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces. And you might think, wait, why is God saying he's going to spread dung on someone's face? (laughs) And the answer is, well, it's following along the same thing we've been talking about with these sacrifices. The dung is supposed to be burned outside the camp. You know, the dung that has to do with the sacrifice that gets burned outside the camp. That's what's supposed to happen, right? And so it's it's about how they're coming to the sacrifice, right? The way that they're coming to the sacrifice, where there's an outward, as you pointed out, Ben, something we can see, right, that tells us about the inward state of the person offering the sacrifice, right? Or that's the idea is that it tells us that. And yeah. I think one of the things that Malachi is saying here, but then, you know, one of the things I think that Jesus clarifies for us is that you can't always make that judgment, right? Or maybe That's you right. shouldn't make that judgment at all. That's right. So verses six and seven of chapter two, Christopher, these hit me. And then I went and found our good old friend Aviva Zornberg, who had some commentary on these verses, which I thought was just fantastic that she had some commentary on Malachi. She's been one of my favorite teachers this year, Ben. Yeah, I feel like you can chew on every single sentence or word that she says. (laughs) Yeah. I love that we don't have to speak about the last book of the Old Testament without some commentary from Aviva Zornberg. (laughs) Well, you know, I was really surprised, Ben, because this isn't Torah. But then when you, you shared it with me, I saw, oh, it's because here, when we read in King James Version, we read the law. But it's actually the the Torah is the word that's being translated law. And so Aviva Zornberg does have something to say about that. Yeah. The statements here in verse six and seven are about the priests and how they should teach. You know, it says the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. I thought that was an interesting phrase as well, right? This is to me almost speaking about mysterious, right? This is talking about they should only give that knowledge when it's appropriate, right? Or when it can be spoken. But we're going to get to here in a bit. Some of the commentary talks about whether truth can be spoken at all. And it says also that the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, also remember that messenger can be translated as angel. So Zornberg comes in and she says that There's no metaphysical claim here about the truth of Torah, but rather a moral claim on the teacher and the judge who administers Torah law. 
I think what she's saying here is that it's not about the message anymore. It's about the messenger. Is the messenger living a righteous life? I don't know that virtuous is the right term in this context, but is that messenger really right with God or righteous in the sense that when they're conveying the message, they're doing it in an honest way or in a pure way, something like that. So then she goes on to say that there's a moment of revelation of surprise, she says, in this reflexive narrative. Sometimes the angel, this messenger, the person that's speaking the law, within himself is revealed. There are times, he says, when a truthfulness flashes forth, even in the muddiness of reality, a clearing may arise for the occasional flare of inspiration. I'm still quoting her here. I hear her voice. Such a true moment is a surprise to himself as well as to others. A text about the truth of Torah moves inwards into the volatile, valuable experience of a human being. If he can be the fuel for such occasional fire, then he can be aroused by the desire of others to manifest again and again, now in the language of surprise, the hidden angel within. So, she goes on to say that this reminds her of a statement from Jacques Lacan, and he puts it like this. He says, all I can do is tell the truth. No, that isn't so. I have missed it. There is no truth that, in passing through awareness, does not lie, but one runs after it all the same. Ben, I'm going to speak for the listener at this point. Wait, what? Yeah. There is no truth that in passing through awareness does not lie, but one runs after it all the same. Some of what's going on here is this idea that we've come up with multiple times, we've, we've mentioned multiple times, that there are certain truths, and you know, Jacques says all truth, this happens with if it's really truth, that as soon as you try to articulate it or put it into words or convey it, there's something lost right it doesn't it doesn't give the whole and if you don't have the whole it in a sense becomes a lie and so one can kind of step back and say if i can't ever actually say anything that's true then i shouldn't even try but he says he says no one runs after it all the same we're always trying we're always seeking we're always reaching for it even if each of our attempts somehow falls short so I think we have something similar to this concept that we discussed back when we did Doctrine and Covenants section 50. And if we go to this, I'm going to read some of the verses from section 50, verses 17 through 22. It says, Verily I say unto you, he that is ordained of me and sent forth to preach the word of truth by the Comforter in the spirit of truth, doth he preach it by the spirit of truth or some other way? And if it be by some other way, it is not of God. And again, he that receiveth the word of truth, doth he receive it by the spirit of truth or some other way? If it be some other way, it is not of God. Therefore, why is it that ye cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the spirit of truth receiveth it as it is preached by the spirit of truth? Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. Wait, what? <laughs> that was for me and the listener. 
I'm glad you're going to give us your midrash on that. <laughs> to me, this goes along with what Zornberg is saying when she talks about the surprise. There's a sense in which the truth, like I was saying, can only be conveyed through the spirit, not words alone. Words are only the running after, as Lacan puts it. They can obscure or deceive just as easily as illuminate or inspire. So revelation always opens our minds to something new, at least it feels new. And so it's a type of surprise, I would say, as Zornberg is saying. And then in that surprise, we attempt to describe the new in old words, and you just can't put new wine in old bottles. So here in chapter three, after we have all of this sort of criticism of the way that the priests are doing things, we have this statement about how the Lord is going to purify the descendants of Levi, the priests. He's going to refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Okay, so again, there's the the critique of everything that's going on, all the wickedness, and they're doing the sacrifices wrong. But the Lord is going to put everything right, and it's going to go back to the way that it's supposed to be. The order is going to be the way that it, it is supposed to be, right? We're going to have the the new heaven and new earth, this recreation. And after the temple's been rebuilt, then everything is going to be the way that it should be. So this statement about making offerings in righteousness, this again comes up in Doctrine and Covenants 13. Remember how I said, Christopher, that Malachi really influenced Joseph Smith? <laughs> oh, yeah. So Doctrine and Covenants 13 is actually the, the text of the ordination that John the Baptist gives to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, where he says that he's conferring on them the Aaronic priesthood, right? So ostensibly, this is the Levitical priesthood, and that one day the sons of Levi will make an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So this is specifically referencing this book, still looking forward to some future time. You know, in Joseph Smith's time, they're not thinking that this is still hasn't been fulfilled, right? We're talking about 2,000 years after this, and the, the, the Christian tradition, and then within Joseph Smith's restoration narrative, this has not been fulfilled. This fact that the descendants of Levi still have not, again, offered an offering in righteousness. I think that's saying something about how these, these prophecies have been reinterpreted and kept being pushed forward to some future date, some latter day, right? This just this future time that's undefined. Yeah, you make a good point there, Ben. So I mentioned earlier, Ben, because we get into now the, the tithing verse. And I mentioned earlier that one of the things that tithing was for is to support the Levitical priests. It's also for orphans and widows. You might expect that, right? And then here's another surprising one. I say another. I don't know if supporting the priests is surprising. But resident aliens. Yeah. That's not how we do it. Refugees? Yeah. Catholic Charities has been taking care of the refugees that come into Utah. You know, I used to live in Utah and we had that. Remember when we had the Syrian refugees coming and we had, you know, people, even among our co-religionists, you know, who were saying, no, we don't want Syrian refugees here, right? Hmm. 
And so that at that point, I remember this was on social media, just giving my own translation of the verse that says, when saw we thee a stranger, right? Yeah. So my translation is when saw we thee a foreigner, because that's really what we're dealing with here. This is the, the word is exeno. And if you've seen, what is it? My big fat Greek wedding, then you know this word, right? Exeno with the toast family, right? Exeno is where we get xenophobia. So this is fear of foreigners, right? This is about foreigners. And so we're going to have foreigners supported by tithing. Whereas the way we do it is we say, no, we don't want to support foreigners. Let the government do it. Well, we don't want the government to do it either. Just don't let them come here, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so then the government is actually paying Catholic charities to settle the refugees that have come to Utah for steady, you know, steady numbers for many, many years. And people thought all of a sudden that there would be more refugees because they're hearing about it, right? Because now their ear is to the ground on this the news. Yeah. Right. But in fact, there, there have been steadily, we've had refugees where we've been helping people for decades and it's Catholic charities who's doing, doing this. And the guy who's in charge of it, who I know is a Muslim working for Catholic Charities, who has the contract from the government to help settle the refugees. So this is how things work then and now. You know, one of the thoughts that came to me on this tithes and offerings scripture here, Christopher, is that within our context, a lot of times we just consider tithes and offerings as just about money, right? Like, this is always monetized within our society and our economy. But for these people, tithes and offerings were not necessarily about money. They were about you know physical goods or livestock or, or something like that, particularly offerings, right? And this reminded me, you know, when it, when it talks about this being the way back to the Lord, you know, he says, how will you return to me? And he says, in tithes and offerings, this is the way the Lord is giving them to start back on the path of a relationship with him, this chesed, right? It reminded me of Leviticus. And then I thought of Rob Bell and his whole discussion about Leviticus and how this was a way that the Lord was giving them for them to bring the divine into their everyday life, into everything that they did. And to think about, in terms of tithes and offerings, everything that we're doing, the Lord being in that and being a part of that, because our relationship with him is a close relationship like a husband and a wife, and everything that you do, a part of every day, you know, you're, you're discussing it, you're, you're sharing that, and for us to bring God into that relationship, that is the point the idea, the end, so to speak, of these tithes and offerings to make God part of every part of our life. Yeah, I mean, I think we can relate this back to what we said about the sacrifices earlier, right? One thing is what you're giving. Another is why you're giving, right? One thing is what you're doing. Another is what is your intent? And, you know, it makes sense whether it comes to money or whether it comes to goods, tithing and offerings, as you will. But you see here, right, that whatever is offered, tithes, offerings, it has a purpose. And in that time, different from our time, right? Certainly with the foreigners, right? We're not using tithing to support resident aliens or foreigners of any type, right? We're supporting maybe a priestly class in some sense. And of course, there's the widows and the orphans. So in some ways, the same, in some ways, different. Whatever the purpose of it is, it is for use, right? How much do we need? 
well, okay, that we've we've been told ten percent, right? Tithing means ten percent. But how much do we need? Well, it depends on how much we need. And if we don't need it now, maybe we'll need it later. So that maybe there's a reason to do as Joseph did, right? It, it, especially if you know, or do you have a prophet telling you, okay, something's coming? Okay, then you store up, right? It's interesting. There is a reference to a you know a storehouse here. You know, the intention here being that this is distributed then to people that are in need. And so right. these tithings and offerings are to be used and there's maybe a storehouse for this kind of stuff. But when we're talking about like goods and livestock, you know, those have a built-in expiration date to them, right? So there has to be a constant flow of this stuff. It's not like you can, you know, build a bigger and bigger storehouse all the time of this kind of thing. It's a stopping place right. for those stuff on on their way to do the good that they're supposed to do. Right. And do you need a bigger and bigger storehouse, right? I mean, maybe you just well, I don't know. I mean, I guess if everybody's paying their 10%, then it just piles up if you don't use it. So building a storehouse is one idea. Another idea is use it more, right? There are plenty of problems to solve in the world. And not to say that just throwing money at them solves everything. It's not that easy. Plenty of organizations have discovered in their efforts to stamp out poverty or or this or that, that it's quite difficult to just throw money at many problems and expect them to go away. That's right. Yeah. But it helps to get things done to have money. Chapter four, Christopher, I have a few things to say about these verses that talk about burning things up and leaving them neither root nor branch and treading down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. But do you have anything to say about them? (laughs) You know, before we get into stuff, we'll have maybe something to say that's meaningful. (laughs) I just have something to say here. It's not that it's not meaningful. I just don't have much to say about it. I just want to point out that in verse two, you get the son of righteousness. And the first time I read it, I just, I guess I read S-O-N, but it doesn't say S-O-N. It says S-U-N. You know, interesting point here, Christopher, there is a quote of this verse, I believe it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, that does say S-O-N. No kidding. It's like this English pun done by Joseph Smith to make like this a Christological reference, which he wasn't the first to do that, right? This does happen elsewhere within some Christian tradition, but it is just kind of interesting. But this this certainly isn't S-O-N. This is S-U-N. They're not similar. They're not homonyms within Hebrew. So <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it's not, nothing like that. No pun intended. So, but what we do have here is a, a familiar Egyptian symbol of deity, right? Yeah. The solar disk, Egyptian and Mesopotamian. So, what is going on here? I don't know. I just thought I'd mention it. <laughs> I'm not I mean, really I, sure either. I looked at some commentary. I, I just didn't yeah. find much on it. You know, so well, the commentary is, just says that's what it is. But the, again, there's not a whole lot of you know discussion of why. Right. That's what I wanted to know. Why? Well, okay. We'll just have to pass it over in silence then. But these first few verses of chapter four, including that one of Son of Righteousness, though kind of have some eschatological violence going on here, Christopher. They they talk about the Lord coming and burning everyone up. And it says, leave them neither root nor branch, which to me seems like a sort of a reference to ancestors and descendants. That's kind of what it sounds like to me. You know, if someone has roots and branches, that's that's their descendants and their ancestors. Oh, I was just thinking about legs and arms. 
but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah that you may have a better interpretation well. than I do. Yeah. Or if we want to, you know, stick with kind of the the tree concept, this is reaching to heaven or descending to Hades with the roots or the branches to to heaven. I don't know. That's where I was going to go next. Yeah. 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 So you know, and it could be how do the multiple choice tests go? Some of the above, all of the above, A and B, yeah, B and yeah. C. So I don't know. So, but no, I think it's it's important though to to note that burning like an oven. We already have in this very book alchemical references, right? We're we're talked about purifying gold and silver, right? We didn't mention the refiner's fire, but we did mention refining. And there was the fuller's soap, right? So earlier in this same book. So burning like an oven, this is another alchemical reference as far as I'm concerned. This looks like purification. So we, and, and by the way, if you, you want to leave them without branch or root, I mean, if you want something to be pure, you meant pure, didn't you? That, that means Every nook and cranny, right? The branches, the roots, everything. Yeah. So that that's how I read it. I mean, and it could be that. What I wonder though, Christopher, is when we get to verse three, because it says you're gonna tread down the wicked, they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Like like I said, this seems like eschatological destruction here. We didn't talk about it, but at the end of chapter two, there's this statement, where is the God of justice? Right? This is the people crying for justice. The, all of these prayers and questions we've had throughout the Old Testament of these people, especially after they've gone into exile. Why did this happen to us? Where is God? Who's going to avenge us of all of these wrongs? This is kind of that that answer to that question, where's the God of justice? Oh, he's going to come, you know, and, and everything's going to be put in its proper place. But But to me, like this consuming fire is an interesting contrast to the way that creation began. Okay. And, and what's, what's also interesting is that at least within the Christian tradition, this is at the very end of the Old Testament. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, what we have is the primordial waters of chaos. And so while the flood was a return to that chaos in some ways, God promised not to flood the earth again. The burning then in this situation in this case is a similar event of destruction, but it's by fire, not water. And so the placement of this at the end of the prophets in the Old Testament for Christian tradition, for our tradition, doesn't seem to be necessarily coincidental. It seems to be maybe an intentional bookend to Genesis 1 in which God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And so New Testament writers may have seen the fulfillment of the promise of Elijah in John the Baptist, you know, John says Jesus will baptize with fire when he comes. So he says, I'll baptize with water, but Jesus is going to baptize you with fire. So whether or not this was the intention of the author of Malachi, the idea persists in our tradition as well as the interpretation. And it seems like solidly metaphorical to me. Even though you may hear Christians or, or people in our tradition talk about the second coming and you know all these people being burned up and everything like that, the way that it's placed here really makes it metaphorical. It happens on the day of the Lord, and it has to do with salvation, not with like a literal fiery genocide. 
Yeah. And not to contradict you at all, just going back Mm -hmm. to my other reading, if it's the day of the Lord and I'm going to see God, I have to be purified. I have to be burned. That's just how it works. So, and then, you know, here's another idea. I I just love this. And we're coming again to the end of the Old Testament. I keep saying that. I'm feeling it. And I'm excited for the New (laughs) Testament, right? At the same time. But, you know, we... We've seen how this works, right? I'm just, I'll give you another Midrash pen. How about this? By this time, we've already said that we're Hellenized. The image of chaos and water from Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern one. But Stoic physics from Greece tell us that everything comes from fire and will return to fire. Hmm. So maybe it is, as you said, an image of recreation, right? Yeah, not but now, yeah. but now in a Hellenistic image, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, so, that's interesting. There you go. And let's let's end this discussion the way the Muslim scholars do when they're doing their exegesis and they disagree. And by the way, we're not disagreeing, <laughs> but but we can still end with and God knows best. And God knows best. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you have anything else you want to say about the last chapter of the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Well, you know, this last verse here, Christopher, has such strong influence within the Latter-day Saint tradition. It's been reinterpreted, words substituted in it to clarify the meaning within the context that, that Joseph Smith was presenting it in. We get statements specifically about what it is that we're talking about here in terms of hearts of parents to their children and hearts of children to their parents. And again, within the restoration tradition, this is talking about sealing, talking about temples. Obviously, there's more to it than that. It's a a much more dense concept even within our tradition. It's an interesting discussion of that because within the Jewish tradition, within the Christian tradition, there really isn't a whole lot of discussion about what this means. Not as much commentary as I was expecting, I should say, about these phrases. So, you know, really open up to Joseph Smith's interpretation and presentation of, of this verse. Like I said, it, it, has a special place within Latter-day Saint tradition because of how Joseph Smith used it to teach his principles of sealing, of temple worship, of restoration. So, I have nothing to add to that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Christopher, in the last few minutes, let's cover all of the apocryphal books that we haven't gotten to yet, okay? Sure, Ben. (laughs) That is to say, we won't (laughs) be doing that not because we don't want to or we don't think that there is important. There's quite a few books that are not included in our scriptural canon, but are included in other traditions in their canon. So, you know, the Catholic tradition has some books that are included in theirs. The Eastern Orthodox tradition has some and others as well. And so, there is a lot of value to what is in those books. We aren't going to cover them because it doesn't fit within the schedule of the Come Follow Me that we're trying to keep with. But that doesn't mean that somebody who's very interested in this should not go and and read those and seek them out and and apply the same types of hermeneutics or or understanding or careful consideration that they have to every other book in the Old Testament. 
Yeah. The missionaries stopped by the other day and they asked me a question. They're participating in a Bible study group and a question came up for them about, they wanted to know about the abomination of desolation. Hmm. And so in answering their question, I said, well, let me go over here to the shelf, you know, and let's read from Maccabees, right? And this is from the Bible, right? Well, it's in the Catholic Bible. It's in, it's yep. in our study Bibles, right? And it's in the, I think it's in the Orthodox Bible, but it's not in our Protestant Bible. And then it turns out that they already had it on their phones. <laughs> they're, they're reading the Apocrypha on their phones. So these are not your mother's missionaries, <laughs> meaning us, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so the Apocrypha are there. Of course, Joseph Smith famously asked the question, should I translate this stuff when he was producing what we call his translation of the Bible? And the answer is no need to, but there's plenty of good stuff in there and it needs to be discerned by the spirit. And you think, okay, well, what books of the Bible does that not apply to, right? Yeah. What sacred text does that not apply to? And then you have the problem that, that I mentioned earlier, that who gets to decide what's canon and what's not canon? So mm -hmm. I would argue that I believe the scholars who tell me, and I get how they do what they do, right? I, I know enough about these things to, to understand what they're doing. I believe them when they tell me that we're going to the New Testament, this is going to be an issue. Not all of the letters that are attributed to Paul are written by the same person. Mm -hmm. And you know what? This was not a surprise to me because some of the things that are said in some of the letters contradict some of the things that are said in some of the other letters, you know, in a fundamental way. So, so it really wasn't surprising to me at all to hear that. We mentioned at the beginning of this year that the five books of Moses, as we traditionally think of them, were not written by any one person either, right? And so this is something that is clear, that has been known for a long time, but had not been brought up really in our tradition. And it's not actually brought up still, but the opposite, the inverse is, right? We no longer have in our manual that these books were written by Moses. So it just gets taken out, right? That was the first time that happened this year. Another thing to remember is, this was mentioned before too, especially at the beginning of the podcast this year, there was a question of whether to remove the Apocrypha from the Protestant Bible, right, around the time of Joseph Smith. This was in his lifetime, around the beginning of his prophetic career. And so this question was about whether they would be printed, right, whether the Apocrypha would be printed. So to be clear, if you didn't know, Right. If the listener is not aware, the King James translators translated the Apocrypha. There is a King James version of the Apocrypha. It's just not in our King James version of the Bible. I had to go get one from the bookstore. You know, there's a little red book from Oxford that is the King James version of the Apocrypha. And then, of course, in my NRSV study Bible, and you can also get a KJV study Bible that's going to have them included already. I didn't go deeply into this, I didn't look into it much further. But it could have just been about saving money printing books. You know, this has some kind of lesser status, perhaps. And then my last point to make about the Apocrypha, Ben, is so much of our tradition, the Latter-day Saint tradition, comes from the Apocrypha, whether it's because Joseph Smith read it, whether it's because Joseph Smith was inspired with the same ideas, whatever the case may be, there are things that just aren't familiar in Christianity and, you know, in Orthodox Christianity or mainstream Christianity, or even in the Bible, if we, you know, don't count the Apocrypha as part of the Bible, that are part of our religion that 
for most of us, we think, oh, this comes from Joseph Smith. Well, and he did say these things, but they're also in the Apocrypha. Some of these books that have been most important in our tradition are books like the books of Enoch. We've mentioned that before, right? Yeah. But what I mean is there are other writings that show up in our tradition that somehow we identify with, whether it's because Joseph Smith got something from them or got something like them, or we saw something that looked like something Joseph Smith said, some of the above, all of the above, I don't know, right? Another reason that the apocryphal books were taken out around the time of Joseph Smith was sort of an anti-Catholic fervor that was going on, especially within the United States. And so when the books were printed, if it was sort of a Catholic thing, they were going to remove that out of it to make it more distinctly Protestant. That sounds familiar. You may be right about that, yeah. So there are a few things to consider there about the about the Apocrypha. You have also the Gnostic Gospels as we go into the New Testament. And so we'll be coming back to this topic and talking about canonization all over again as we go into the New Testament. Looking forward to it. Me too. So we want to thank our editors, Kyle, Michael, for all the work that you guys put in. You've been doing an amazing job. Anyway, just thank you guys so much. We want to thank the others that are part of the Latter-day Peace Studies Project, Bethany and Tom and Riley and everybody. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Ben. Till next time, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado.